One of the most famous trials that has ever taken place in American sports history took place in 1921, and it's known as the Black Sox Scandal. It involved eight players from the Major League Baseball team, Chicago White Sox, and those players, including the famous outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson, were indicted for taking money from a gambling syndicate in exchange for throwing the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. And at the trial, once all of the evidence was heard, 12 jurors convened for three hours and brought back a decision of not guilty on all counts. They were declared free before the law. These eight players walked out of the courtroom and they no longer were in jeopardy of the law condemning them for violating it. But the Major League Baseball Association had just hired a new commissioner by the name of Kennesaw Landis. And he had different ideas about that judgment. So he used his authority and his power to ban all eight players from ever playing baseball again. They tried in various ways, and he blocked them at every step. And so for the rest of their lives, they lived under the scorn and the condemnation of baseball fans everywhere. They became known as the ones responsible for the curse of the Black Sox. Now, it's not uncommon for people to walk out of courtrooms today having been acquitted of the charges that were leveled against them but nevertheless to leave that courtroom under a cloud of suspicion and accusations continuing to fly toward them for the rest of their lives. Even people who refuse to acknowledge the verdict will go on condemning them of guilt. But when God declares His people not guilty, there is no more condemnation forever. When God acquits, When God forgives, when God justifies, there can be no further charges, no more condemnation that can come against his people for all of eternity. Now, this is the point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. This is the passage that we come to today in our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. So I invite you to open a copy of God's Word to that place. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see this on page 945. 945. And what I want to do is to get the whole context before us because the Apostle Paul is making a case here in the latter part of Romans. And so I'll begin to read in verse 31, but I'll read all the way down through verse 39, and then we'll see our text in the midst of this in verses 33 and 34. So hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Paul wraps up this part of his letter, he draws out some ironclad, irrefutable, necessary implications of the things that he has just written about. The things that he's been writing about since verse 16 of chapter 1. But especially the things that he's been writing about in this 8th chapter. In this chapter, he's talked about things that are true of every Christian. Like in verse 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like our union with Christ Jesus through faith. Things like, our adoption into the family of God, such that we can now, in Christ, call God Abba, Father. Things like our sharing a heritage with Christ because we are joint heirs with Him. Things like the promise in verse 28 that God will work everything together for the good of of His people, those who are called and those who love Him. Things like the everlasting love of God for His people that began before the world and continues on and guarantees our complete conformity to the image of His Son. And then in verse 31, He starts listing the implications that we must not miss. What shall we say to these things? He writes. And as we saw last week, as we looked at verses 31 and 32, we have to answer Paul, well, the first thing we must say is that God is for us, and therefore, nothing can destroy us. God is our God. We're His people. So we have no reason to fear that anything or anyone can come against us that will destroy us. Today, we come to verses 33 and 34, and we learn that God has justified us, therefore, nothing can condemn us. Nobody can accuse us before God successfully. Look at what Paul says in making this point, again, by using rhetorical questions, which he does all the way through this section. And there are two questions that we find in our text in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then the second rhetorical question, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. These two questions that Paul uses rhetorically make the same point. Because God has justified His people, nobody can successfully condemn His people in God's courtroom. There's no more condemnation for those whom God has justified. Let's look at these two questions and see how they make this incredible point, this point that we must not miss so that we can live properly in response to all that God has done for us. First, in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
Well, before we look at that, I need to make sure that we don't misunderstand Paul's question. Paul is not suggesting by this rhetorical question that nobody can ever criticize Christians again. I mean, that's certainly not the case. We face condemnations all the time from people. In fact, Revelation 12.10 says that the devil, our enemy, is the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus, our Lord, he himself was charged with things that were untrue. He was accused with, of being an insurrectionist. He was accused of blasphemy. He was accused of being demon-possessed. And he tells his followers that we should not expect anything less. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he puts it like this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says something that's just incredible. He says, rejoice and be glad because in the same way they, rewarded, they persecuted the prophets who were before you and your reward is great in heaven. After he had served as a pastor for many years, R.C. Sproul noted the truth of this reality when he wrote this. One of the freak, most frequent sins a Christian must endure in his, this life at the hands of other people is that of slander. In fact, one of the names for Satan means slanderer, devil. And as Christians, we are constantly exposed to the criticism, the insults, the slanders, the calumnies of those who are hostile toward us. So don't misunderstand Paul's point here when he uses this question rhetorically. He's not saying that if you've been justified by God, nobody can ever insult you again. So when you get insulted, don't think, well, wait a minute. I thought Paul said this wasn't going to happen. That's not his point. What is his point? His point is that no one can ever make a charge of condemnation stick against any Christian. The word charge here is a legal word. It comes from the courtrooms of Paul's day. It means to indict. It means to press charges against someone. He makes this point in regard to God's people, what nobody can do to God's people, in two ways. He makes it first by the words that he uses, the language he employs, and then secondly, by the response that he gives to the rhetorical question. So let's look at the language that he chooses to employ when he makes this point by his question. So he calls us God's elect. God's elect. Now, that's not unusual and it's not something that is surprising because he's just written a few verses above about God's eternal love for his people he has said that in verse 29 God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son the Bible teaches this glorious truth of election and predestination from Old Testament to New Testament some people are confounded by it. Some people don't like it. But it's a glorious truth of God's word. If we simply take God at his word and see what it is he's setting before us when he teaches us these truths and see the implications of them, we will be filled with wonder and awe and praise to our God. We see it in the Old Testament when God chose Abraham. He didn't choose anybody else to be the father of many nations. Israel was the chosen people of God, the chosen nation throughout the Old Testament era. And we see it in the New Testament when the Scripture talks about 
Christians being the chosen people of God. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he goes on, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now again, if this sounds mysterious to you or you don't understand it, that's okay. Don't be alarmed by that. Paul's going to elaborate this very point in chapter 9. But if you're a Christian, you can be sure that God has loved you with a love that has no beginning. God chose you, brother, sister. He chose you before He created this world. That's an amazing thought. It's something that we need to back up and consider pretty regularly in our lives. God chose us to be a part of His eternal family. And if that's hard for you to believe, don't let that become a reason not to believe it. Because God has revealed it. And in believing it, you will find strength and hope and joy come to your soul. We'll become reassured that nothing can condemn us before God. The elders are reading a book by a pastor in London named Rico Tice. And in that book, he talks about his own need to be reminded of this truth. And so he says, I've developed a mini catechism for myself. Every morning when I wake up, I begin to ask myself specific questions. And one of those questions is this. Rico, when did God choose you? And here's the answer that he recites to himself every morning. Before the creation of the world. He chose you in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And He predestined you for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's true of us. God chose you. God knew you long before you were born. God knew you before time. He set His heart upon you. He determined to have you. So believe this. Take God at His word. Paul says, who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? If you're trusting Jesus Christ, that's you. But it's not just that word that he uses that makes the point. It's the response that he goes on after the rhetorical question in verse 34. The response is, it is God who justifies. To be justified is to have God regard you as if you had never sinned and to grant you righteousness. Justification is a legal concept. It refers to a declaration that God Himself makes. Justification includes forgiveness, but it's far more than forgiveness. It includes being acquitted of crimes that are charged against you. But it is far more than acquittal. Justification is having your status, your standing before God's law changed permanently. Because in the law's eyes, the person who is justified is no longer out of compliance with it. Now the justified person can look at the law and say this law has nothing more to say against me because the law has been perfectly satisfied. Righteousness that it requires has been completed. And it's been completed in Jesus Christ. 
Paul elaborates the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in chapters 3 through 5. We've looked at those in weeks and months past. And the heart of his argument is found in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And I encourage you to flip back there for just a moment. And let's look at these verses again. This may be the most important paragraph in all the Bible. Romans 3, 21 through 26. After he has spent chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 20 of chapter 3, he spent that whole section showing how Everyone is under condemnation for sin. There's no exception. Not you, not me, not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham. Everybody is under sin. And we cannot provide the righteousness that God requires. In verse 21, Paul then, against that dark backdrop, announces this incredibly good news. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the justifier of those who trust Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be counted fully and completely righteous in His sight. And it happens through faith. It happens the moment that you turn from your sin and you bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. And as you receive Christ as Lord, God justifies you and you're justified forever. In that moment, Christ becomes your substitute. And you can have confidence that He will remain your substitute throughout all of eternity. He stands in your place before the law. And as the law says, you must be righteous. You must be perfectly righteous. We can point to Christ and say, in Him, I am. In Him, there's no more condemnation. This is what the Apostle means when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. This means that you can no longer ever be condemned as unrighteous in God's sight. Rather, now you have right standing before Him. Well, Paul goes on to show how inconceivable it is that anyone could make any charge of condemnation stick against God's elect by calling attention to the fact that it is God Himself who justifies us. It is God who justifies. It's His law that we have broken. It comes from Him. It's His courtroom that we're called into to give an account for our sin. He's the one who calls us to that account. He is the Creator. He is the Sustainer. He is the Judge of all. And He has declared us justified. There's no higher court of appeal. In the United States, we have the Supreme Court. That a case can start locally and come to a decision that is 
questioned and challenged and it can work its way up through the court system Well, it finally gets to the Supreme Court, we understand here in the United States that when the Supreme Court renders a decision, that that becomes the standing decision for the whole nation. Why? Because there's no court above the Supreme Court in the United States. Well, there's no judge above God anywhere. This is His world. He created it. He's ruling it. He's judging it. He's the only judge that we will have to stand before and give an account for our never dying souls. And this one, this judge, because you are in Christ, says you are justified. There's no condemnation. God's the one who renders this decision. Because that is true, there's no one or no thing that can ever condemn you. Nobody can overturn this decision. So the question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. That's the first point. The second question makes the point as well. Who is to condemn? That's verse 34. The, the question in Paul's mind, the way he's using it rhetorically, it's, it's like it's, he's just incredulous. Who would dare to condemn God's people? Who has the audacity to think that they can condemn God's elect, the persons for whom God Himself gave up His Son. To add to the incredulity of the thought, Paul gives a four-part answer to this question. Who is it that could condemn? And the answer all centers around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ guarantees that no one can condemn God's people. In verse 34, Paul provides evidence for the truth that God justifies us. He is providing irrefutable certainty so that his people might have full assurance that he accepts us completely forever. Let's look at the four assertions that he makes about Jesus. He says Christ Jesus is the one who died. Well, we know that he died. He died on the cross. That's the story of his crucifixion. But why did he die? Why did Christ Jesus die? The wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't sin. Why did he have to endure God's wrath on the cross? He had no sin of his own to pay for. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down voluntarily. He tells his disciples, look, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. And this would be over. It was a choice that he made. Why did he make it? He tells us why. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus died to serve God's chosen people, to make atonement for our sins, so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him might be justified. As we just read in Romans 3, in verses 25 and 26, we see that God put forth Jesus to be a propitiation by His blood. His blood, His death on the cross, propitiated the wrath of God, satisfied the wrath of God by fulfilling the requirements of the law. That law that says, you must be completely righteous, and if not, the soul that sins must surely die. Jesus has done that. Brothers and sisters, the point that Paul is encouraging us to take note of here 
is that the death of Jesus on the cross is the basis upon which God justifies ungodly people. Every one of our sins must be paid for. Your sins, my sins, your parents' sins, your children's sins, all sin must be paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, that's exactly what he was doing. When he said, it is finished, he is declaring the payment has been made. Atonement has been accomplished. And as you trust in the Lord Jesus, you can be sure that every last one of your sins has been fully paid for by him. This is incredible. Think with me about what we can call the logic of the cross. What Paul is pointing toward here. The cross provides the basis for full assurance for everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus. All sin deserves to be punished. All sin will be punished. And if you are trusting Jesus, you can be sure that your sin has already been punished once for all time by His death on the cross. So, as John, 1 John 1.9 says, that if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, sometimes if you're thinking as a Christian, you think about your sin, you think about God's righteousness, holiness against sin, you say, we say, God would be justified if He cast us all into hell. And when we think about our sin, that's true. If it weren't for Christ. But because of Christ, that's really not true. If you're trusting Christ, it would be unjust for God to cast you into hell for your sins. Why? Because your sins have been paid for once and for all by Him. Before you became a Christian, God's justice was a terrifying thought. You had a sense that your sins were against your Creator. You had some sense that what you were doing was wrong. You had some sense that you knew there should be retribution against you for your sins. And if you thought at all about the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God, the only right thought would be to be terrified by His justice. But after you trust Jesus as Lord, after you are declared righteous in God's sight, after you're justified before Him, His justice becomes a source of comfort for you. Why? Because you know Christ has atoned for your sins and God cannot hold your sins against you anymore. Why? Because He Himself has dealt with your sins once and for all. Augustus Toplady beautifully captures this truth in one of his hymns. It includes these lines. Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First, at my bleeding surety's hand, 
and then again at mine. In our own legal system, we have the prohibition of double jeopardy. If you are vindicated of a charge in a courtroom, you can't be brought back to that courtroom and have that same charge leveled against you. And our God has justified us and is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. Paul goes on in the second assertion here in verse 34. And he builds on the first one. But he says, more than that, more than that, Christ Jesus, who is the, is the one who was raised. Paul is saying, as significant as that first assertion is, this one is more so. He now appeals to the most astounding fact in human history. There was a man who lived 2,000 years ago who was crucified and buried dead. And on the third day came back from the dead never to die again. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Well, Paul's already told us in this letter at the end of chapter 4. In verse 25, he writes there, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus proves that everything that he came to accomplish by his life and death was actually accomplished. God has accepted the sacrifice of his son in the place of sinners. So what Paul is doing here is giving us more grounds for assurance that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When doubts and fears assail you, when the devil comes and accuses you of charges that sin in you, you're, you can't deny because it's there. What are you to do? You're to trust Christ. You're to remember Christ. You're to believe that he has come and accomplished everything necessary to secure your eternal justification. We should remember Jesus Christ has been crucified and raised from the dead. His death demonstrates he has satisfied the law's demands. He has defeated sin. He's defeated hell. He's defeated the devil himself. And his resurrection is eternal proof of that. The first assertion that proves God justifies us is that Christ Jesus is the one who's died. The second is that Christ Jesus is the one who's been raised from the dead. Look at the third assertion. Christ Jesus is the one who reigns. Paul puts it like this, who is at the right hand of God. This is a clear, clear indication of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, his lordship. It is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 110 that begins this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Brothers and sisters. This is our mediator. This is our savior. He rules. He reigns. He's not going to let anything come into your life to destroy you. He's not going to let anything come into your life to condemn you in his courtroom. Your sins are forgiven on the basis of what he has once and for all time done. He's justified you. Nothing, no one can condemn you in God's courtroom. When Satan tempts me to despair. Upward I look and see him there. He tells me of the guilt within. He who made an end of all my sin, I see him there. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him 
and pardon me. The devil will come and make accusations against you. It's what he does. And when he does, don't argue with him. Look to Christ. Remember Christ. Tell the devil to deal with Christ. Because your sins have been paid for in Christ. Paul then goes to the fourth assertion about Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who intercedes for us. Who indeed, he says, is interceding for us. Indeed, most certainly, most assuredly, interceding. He's pleading the merits of his death in behalf of his people. He's there at God's right hand and his people sin and Jesus shows the nail prints in his hands. Jesus pleads his atoning work in behalf of his people. Again, did, 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 you, did you consider it as we sang it? Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. What do they say? Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. And God will not let any ransomed sinner die. We are justified. Who can condemn us? Well, are you trusting Christ today? Can you honestly say that Jesus Christ is your Lord? If so, then brother, sister, be assured of this. That because of Christ, God has justified you. And no one, nothing can condemn you. Ever. The death, the resurrection, the exaltation, the intercession of Jesus guarantees it. So remember Christ. Think about Christ. Meditate on all that you have in Him. Keep trusting Him. Keep following Him. Bring Him into all your temptations and to every accusation that comes into your mind because of your sin. And in faith, take God at His Word and remember and believe that God justifies you fully for Jesus' sake. I know that there are those here who are not trusting Christ. I'm so glad you're here. We hope you'll always come to our gatherings like this. We want you to be here. We want you to, to know the things that God has been teaching us. We want you to know this Christ. And I want to talk to you for just a moment. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ as Lord, why not? Is your sin that precious to you? You know your sin is against God. You know that it's wrong. You know that there's a day of accounting coming. For some of you, that day is far closer than what you think. There's a Savior for sinners. Jesus came. He shed His blood for sinners. He will receive you. He will accept you. He will cause you to be justified before God. He's turned from your sin. Confess your sin. And throw yourself at His mercy and tell Him from your heart right now that you believe these verses that we're looking at. And that you desire to 
know that you also are justified in God's sight. You might think, oh, I don't, I don't have enough faith. It doesn't take Herculean faith. Jesus said, it takes the faith of a child. Childlike faith. With that kind of simple, childlike faith, friend, I plead with you today. I plead with you to believe this word from God. To believe that He will accept you as you trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And trust Him. Children, I want you to listen for a minute. Did you just hear what I said? I referred to what Jesus said when He said, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to be saved from your sins, you know what you need? You need the faith like a little child has. The faith of a child. Kids, do you realize that you have faith? You have a kind of faith. When your mom, your dad, tells you that they're going to do something for you, don't you believe them? When they tell you something that is right or good, you believe that, don't you? Of course you do. That's what childlike faith is. Well, Jesus says that He will save you. He will save you as you trust Him. He promises that He will in no way cast out anybody who comes to Him. And if you come to Jesus with faith, you turn away from your sin as a little child. Jesus promises to receive you. Do you remember when Jesus was on earth? Little children wanted to come to Him. Parents wanted to bring their kids to Him. And the disciples thought He was too important for little kids. But Jesus said to His disciples, Stop! Let the little children come to Me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Children. Children. Jesus still is willing to receive you as a child. So ask the Lord to save you. Talk to your mom. Talk to your dad. Talk to one of your pastors. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Because this salvation is for you as well as for adults. Oh, may God help us to believe that He truly does justify ungodly people through faith in Jesus Christ. And may He help us to live with the confidence that comes from knowing that because He has justified us for Christ's sake, there's no thing, there's no one who can ever condemn us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this glorious truth, this wonderful Gospel. We could scarcely believe it if You had not revealed it. At times it seems too good to be true, but we, we know that what You have said is true and we take You at Your Word. And today I pray that You'd help Your people to be full of assurance. Lord, strengthen our assurance. And in that assurance, give us zeal and desire to Follow Christ with all of our strength, all of our soul, all of our energy. I pray for those here that have never trusted Christ. Would you not today call them? Would you not today show them the, the beauty, the wonder that is in your son? Reveal Christ in them. Cause them to turn from sin. 
to entrust themselves to him and justify them forever. We thank you for being our God. We thank you for speaking to us and giving us your word. Seal to our hearts this morning the truths of this glorious gospel for Jesus' sake. Amen.